Welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 19th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Here's our first story. GOP Fast Tracks Voucher Bill. Measure Clears House, Senate Committees Setting Up Floor Votes. Out of Des Moines, Republicans in both chambers of the legislature passed Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal out of committees on Wednesday, moving the bill one step closer to floor votes. This is just the first step in giving educational freedom to Iowa's students and parents, Reynolds said in a statement after the bill passed both committees. I look forward to this bill reaching the floor in both chambers. Iowans deserve to see where their elected leaders stand. The move came a day after Iowans packed a hearing room Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol to sound off on the plan for the second time in a week. Republican lawmakers seem intent on fast-tracking to a floor vote after the idea failed in previous years. On Wednesday, the bill passed 11-5 in the Senate Education Committee with all Republicans in support and all Democrats opposed. The bill was then referred to the Senate Appropriations Committee, which will meet to consider the bill at 10 a.m. today. Democrats raised similar concerns as they have over the last week as the bill has quickly made its way through the lawmaking process. They said the bill deprives already underfunded public schools of funding, siphons money to wealthy families, and they raise concerns about private school accountability. The governor's office estimates the state will spend $107 million in the program's first year. By full implementation in the fourth year, the state would spend $341 million annually, it estimates. I don't know where we're going to get another $341 million to put into this program, except by shortchanging the public schools again, Democratic Senator Herman Krumbach, the ranking member of the committee, said. Republican Senate President Amy Sinclair of Allerton, who managed the bill in subcommittee, said in response to concerns about private school accountability that they go through the same accreditation process as public schools and teachers require the same licenses. Don't tell me they're not accountable, she said. They are accredited by the same agencies that our Department of Education utilizes, the same processes. The proposal passed out of the House Education Reform Committee Wednesday on 3-2 party line vote, with Democrats opposed, making it eligible for floor debate next week. It's a stark contrast to last year when debate over a much narrower proposal failed in the House with Republican holdouts joining Democrats in opposition and delayed the end of session by weeks. This year, top Republican lawmakers have made procedural changes to eliminate potential obstacles, pushing the bill through the committee process before the end of the session's second week. House Democrats accused Republicans of rushing the legislation through without adequate vetting. A House committee Tuesday advanced a new rule along party lines with Democrats opposed, allowing the bill and others assigned to the newly formed Education Reform Committee to bypass committees that review spending and tax issues, where the proposal's financial impact would have been assessed. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, and lobbyists for groups that represent educators and public school districts decried the move, stating it flies in the face of transparency, good governance, and accountability. Confirst chastised House Republicans, who hold a 64-36 majority, for circumventing fiscal oversight in the interest of expediting Reynolds' top legislative priority. House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, contends Republicans are being transparent, having held a public hearing on the bill. 
Grassley said he is more than happy to have an open committee debate on its tax and spending implications. He said he created the committee in large part to advance the bill for a vote in the House, where Reynolds' previous school choice proposal stalled each of the past two years, rather than getting it blocked in committee. Conference said, <clears throat> excuse me, Conference said Wednesday, the only information Republicans have provided about the bill's cost come from their own estimates and those of the governor, not the nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. This is not ready for prime time in any way, shape, or form, Conferst, who sits on the House Education Reform Committee, told reporters. We have a lot of questions. We don't have any information from a nonpartisan source that tells us what the bill will cost. Reynolds' proposal would create taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts valued at $7,598 in the first year, the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education that families could use for private school tuition and other education expenses. The program would be phased in over three years, prioritizing kindergarten and low-income students in the first two years. In the third year, all K-12 students, including private school students, would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. Public schools would lose out on the per-pupil funding for any student who chooses to attend a private school. However, the legislation also provides each school district roughly $1,200 for every student who lives in the district but attends a private school. That funding is devoted whether the private school student is a recent transfer or has always attended private school. Supporters on Tuesday night said the funding is needed to give more families an opportunity with state assistance to send their children to the school that best fit their needs. Passing this bill will allow full education freedom for families, providing true customization that allows us to think broader about our education opportunities, said Samantha Fett, a former Carlisle school board member and parent. The number one budget line item in Iowa is education, Fett said. And what do we have to show for it? Low test scores, underperforming schools, less than the best educated students. School choice is the only way to move away from this one-size-fits-all disaster. Opponents argue the measure would siphon resources away from public schools to fund the education of a few students at private schools, including those who can afford to attend without the state aid. Students, they argue, would be better served by using such funds to make public schools stronger. Critics also note the proposal does not provide an actual choice for students living in rural areas who have few, if any, access points to schools other than their local public schools. According to Iowa Department of Education, there are 40 counties with no private schools, nearly all of them rural counties. There were 33,692 students enrolled in 183 private schools in Iowa for the 2022-23 school year, according to state data. Opponents argue the measure would further segregate public schools, allowing private schools to accept taxpayer dollars but reject students for a variety of reasons. My school, Iowa's public schools, accept all students regardless of their abilities, color, religion, language, and any other difference, said Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association. Des Moines parent Jaslyn Fitz said her autistic son, who has an individualized education plan, and other children like him will have no choice to attend private school because private schools can't and will choose not to accept him and his specialized needs. In my mind, vouchers are discriminatory toward disabled children because there is no guarantee that they will be accepted and properly supported in private schools, Fitz said. 
my taxpayer funds should go toward funding public institution with access to everyone. Our next headline is Ban Sought on Defense Tactic Using Gay Panic. Iowa House Moves on Legislation for Third Time. This is by Tom Barton from the Courier Des Moines Bureau. Out of Des Moines, the Iowa House lawmakers, for a third time, have moved forward legislation that would prevent a defendant from using a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a mitigating factor if charged with a violent crime or assault. The legal strategy asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. The so-called gay panic defense has been used successfully in other states. Keenan Crow of One Iowa told a subcommittee that voted unanimously Wednesday to move the bill to the full House Judiciary Committee. Subcommittee member and freshman Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat out of Cedar Rapids, said he was shocked to learn such a defense could be used in legal proceedings and voted to advance the bill. Perpetrators who use the legal strategy claim a defense of diminished capacity. They argue that learning another person's sexual orientation or gender identity in a nonviolent sexual advance or come on from an LGBTQ plus person led to a loss of self-control and the subsequent assault. What this bill aims to do is not excuse these assaults or murders simply because their victim is an LGBTQ person, Crow told the subcommittee of House lawmakers. Damian Thompson, director of public policy and communication for Iowa Safe Schools, cited the 2016 killing of Kadari Johnson, a gender-fluid Burlington teenager who was shot twice, his head covered by a plastic bag, and another shoved down his throat. Johnson's body was doused with bleach by a man intending to have sex with the 16-year-old, who often presented as female and was dressed in women's clothing on the night of his death. The fact the panic defense is even legal in the code is a bit of an insult to the LGBTQ community here in Iowa, Thompson said, and it kind of dishonors the memory of students like Hadari Johnson. The legislation was approved unanimously by the House in 2020, but the legislature suspended its session a week later because of the coronavirus pandemic. Lawmakers again unanimously approved the bill in 2021, but it was never taken up by the Senate. I find the use of this defense to be preposterous and heinous, said Representative Bobby Kaufman, Rep- Republican out of Wilton, who again is managing the bill. It does not pass the common sense test. This shouldn't be a defense for anybody. Kaufman says he expects the bill will again pass the House unanimously, but said he could not speak for why senators did not consider the bill in previous sessions. I'm just hopeful that our persistence pays off, he told reporters. I stand ready to answer any questions that may be needed to get this down to the governor's desk. Kaufman added he's found quite a bit of support for the bill in the Senate and is optimistic it will be signed into law this year. Senate Judiciary Chairman Brad Zahn, a Republican from Urbandale, and Senate Republican leadership did not immediately respond Wednesday afternoon to a request for comment on the bill. The move, though, comes at the same time Republicans are pushing forward legislation that would prohibit teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation in certain grades and would prohibit schools from taking steps from affirming or recognizing a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from their parents. This bill and those bills couldn't possibly be more diametrically different, Kaufman said, responding to a reporter's question. So I am dealing with each bill in a vacuum, and this bill is simply the right thing to do. Our next headline, Council 
changes fireworks ordinance. Also, developer shows interest in Wrath facility. This is by Maria Cupper out of Waterloo. Fireworks fans will have to follow new restrictions in Waterloo this summer. The city council unanimously passed a new fireworks ordinance Tuesday without discussion. Councilors suspended the rules to approve the ordinance a second and third time as well, putting it into effect immediately. The ordinance now allows fireworks to be set off from noon to 11 p.m. only July 4th. The council can designate additional days of usage in a particular year if those dates are adopted between January 1st and March 1st. Previously, fireworks could be exploded within the city on July 3rd, 4th, and 5th. The council also approved a cost-share agreement with Gearhart Moore Holdings, LLC, for Terracon Consultants, Incorporated, to perform testing in the former Rath Administration Building at 1515 Sycamore Street. The amount is not to exceed $16,000, and the city will reimburse Gearhart Moore Holdings for 50% of the actual cost. Community Planning and Development Director Noel Anderson said the testing would be for ground-penetrating radar to look at the foundation of the building to make sure it is structurally sound for redevelopment. Anderson said Gearhart Moore Holdings of Denver, Colorado, is made up of two men who went to West High School and want to revamp the building into a potential residential complex. Additionally, a development agreement was approved with Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity and the 415 Walnut Collective. The groups will rehabilitate a portion of Walnut Baptist Church at 415 Walnut Street to create three residential units. Habitat for Humanity acquired the church in 2019 and is working to reclaim it. This is phase one of the project. The agreement would allow for an infill incentive of $5,000 to be paid out for each unit once they are completed. In other business, the council proved a Consolidated Public Safety Communications 28E agreement with Blackhawk County and surrounding cities to coordinate the professional dispatching of public safety services in the county. A U.S. Department of Justice, Northern and Middle States Rural Law Enforcement Training and Technical Assistance Grant in the amount of $68,000. A professional services agreement with AECOM Technical Services, Inc. for a traffic impact study located at Ansboro Avenue and U.S. Highway 20 for the South Waterloo Business Park in an amount not to exceed $126,000. Rezoning of approximately... 0.32 acres north of the former Kmart building on University Avenue to make way for a new storage facility. Finally, a request to construct a new 7,407-square-foot dentist office located east of 4020 Bankers Boulevard. A YouTuber convicted of interference in arrest. Waterloo Man says he plans to appeal verdict. This is by Jeff Reinitz. Out of Waterloo, a Waterloo content creator said he plans to appeal a jury's verdict that he obstructed police who are arresting his neighbor as part of a sex crime investigation in April. Dressed in a black sport coat with his Army combat and airborne badges, black and white Nike high top, and sporting reddish hair spiked, Bo James Bish took the stand in his own defense Wednesday. Bish told jurors he was simply trying to film the arrest when he was charged for interference with official acts, a misdemeanor. The Nebraska native served two combat tours in in Afghanistan and attended college while working different jobs, airport security, cell phone tower technician, before landing in Waterloo. 
He is considered disabled from post-traumatic stress and physical injuries from firefights and explosions. He began a YouTube channel as a way to get out of the house and remain active. The channel, Flex Your Freedoms, features Bish's numerous interactions with police. It gives you a pure taste of how they really act, Bish said. A typical video starts with him filming in public, maybe on a city street or near the entrance to a business or government office. Eventually, someone will become suspicious of him and approach. Often, Bish will say he's a reporter with BCNN working on a story and hand them a hand-drawn card identifying himself as Billy Buttcrack. There are usually a few jokes. I use comedy. I keep it light, entertaining, he said. Almost always, someone will challenge his right to film. Ultimately, the police will show up and try to identify him. He responds that he's lawfully filming in public. He'll throw in some jokes and maybe a veiled insult. Reactions vary. Sometimes officers strike up a conversation, show him the equipment in their squad cars. Sometimes they press him, try to get him to move along. He's live-streaming the whole time. The activity is called First Amendment auditing. If you don't exercise your rights, you lose them, Bish said. The incident that brought Bish to court this week wasn't his typical video. Prosecutors allege he hampered officers' efforts to detain the neighbor and search the neighbor's house because police had to tell Bish to stand back and twice physically move him back from a safety bus buffer they were trying to establish around the scene. Bish said he had just returned home and noticed police vehicles and officers across the street. He moved in p- position to film Houston Simmons III being arrested. Authorities allege Simmons resisted in his driveway and again when they were trying to place him in the squad car. Lieutenant Lieutenant Randy Gersh testified that he and other officers were doing a preliminary sweep of Simmons' home for safety reasons when they heard the commotion outside where Simmons was being cuffed. Outside, while part of the home had yet to be swept, he was providing perimeter security during the arrest and search when he noticed Bish filming. Police body camera footage and Bish's own video shows he was on the sidewalk outside the neighbor's property. Gersh first asked him for his name to identify him because he was a witness to the arrest. I don't answer questions, Bish said. Okay, then go, Gersh said. How about F off? I'm on public, nerd, Bish responds. Gersh said he gave Bish a little time to move back and readdressed him when he didn't, putting his hand on his chest and directing him backward into the street. The officer told jurors that he wanted to keep people back to make sure items weren't added to or removed from the scene, and Bish was within reaching distance from the neighbor's fence. Bish told jurors he wanted to get a better angle of the arrest, as the view from across the street was blocked by vehicles. Bish called him a bitch and a effing retard, they argued. The officer pushed him back a second time, leading him across the street as a vehicle passed. Sergeant Greg Erie became involved. He had to stay out of our work area. Erie testified. The officers walked back to the scene and Bish continued to film. The profanity also continued. Some five minutes later, Bish, relocated to another area near a group of neighbors, can be heard yelling the F word. Erie approached and asked the neighbors if they were offended by the language. He's fine, one woman said. Erie began to walk away, but Bish added some choice words and called him a tyrant. The officer, a Marine Corps veteran, said he was offended by the term. He told Bish he was detaining him for disorderly conduct. During closing arguments at trial, Assistant County Attorney Christopher Klein and Bish took away officers' attention from the task at hand, an arrest and a search. The defense disagreed. Bo didn't go over to them. They came over to him. He was passively filming, said defense attorney Gary Dickey, Jr. Jurors deliberated for about two and a half hours before finding Bish guilty Wednesday afternoon 
Sentencing will be at a later date. Bish said he plans to appeal the verdict. This isn't the first time one of Bish's videos landed him in court. In September 2021, he put on a wig, sunglasses, makeup, and an orange jumpsuit and began filming at the Muscatine City Hall as Grandma, one of the regular characters from his channel. During the live stream shoot, he pushed the envelope of access to public property, entering a back office area that wasn't open to the general public and refusing to leave. When an employee touched his arm in an effort to remove him, he said rape and molestation, according to court records. The incident landed him a trespass citation, and he was convicted during a bench trial and fined $200 plus costs. From the Cedar Valley section, we have CF planning document gets okay. Capital Improvements Program approved 6 to 1 following modifications. This is by Andy Malone, and it's out of Cedar Falls. For those wanting a say in the city's projects and initiatives during the next several years, Tuesday was the night to make their voices heard. The city council voted down an earlier version of the planning document, 4 to 3, on January 3rd, for the first time in decades, or possibly the history of Cedar Falls. Since then, Councilors have met individually with administration officials and returned to a packed chambers Tuesday with proposals for modifications to the capital improvements program. After about two and a half hours on the subject, the council reached consensus on certain changes and voted six to one in favor of a workable document to move forward with planning for more than $400 million worth of estimated costs for 211 possible projects that will be considered in fiscal years 2023 to 2028. Councillor Dave Sires dissented because of a disagreement with the city's spending priorities, not the document as a whole. They debated the merits of suggestions, pitched additional ideas, and heard from numerous stakeholders. That included many supporters of a school swimming facility, as well as Mark Nook, University of Northern Iowa president, Jim Brown, former mayor and now Cedar Falls Economic Development Corporation executive director, Kim Baer, Community Main Street executive director, Mike Malaro, VGM Group Chief Executive Officer, and Rosemary Beach, former Cedar Falls Historical Society Executive Director. In working through the document, officials shaved off close to $1 million in commitments for general, ob general obligation bonding and about $500,000 in general revenues with expectations that will slightly reduce the impact on the property tax rate over the next five years. To help reach those figures, they put into action a last-minute suggestion by Councillor Simon Harding to take advantage of $300,000 of surplus left over from the fiscal year that ended June 30th and designate it for use on capital projects. The night began with pushing back $100,000 in tax increment financing proceeds for a future feasibility study on a possible downtown parking structure. Originally scheduled for the current fiscal year, it's now not expected to happen until 2024. Until that study is completed, the councilors favored moving the other $20.4 million dedicated over fiscal years 2024 to 2026 for the costs of land acquisition, design, and construction for the ramp to the unmet needs list. In other words, the endeavor is in the pipeline without dedicated funding because the study is expected to determine how the city should proceed. Some in the room, including Councilors Kelly Dunn and Gil Schultz, worried the move would create the perception that the ramp may never be built and could be forgotten. Originally, the university asked for 3 to $5 million towards $50 million in significant renovations to the UNI Dome. 
As part of another decision that night, the council ended up cutting $500,000 in an economic development funding off the original ask, bringing its contribution down to $2.5 million over fiscal years 2025 and 2026. Councillor Dustin Ganfield suggested even reducing the overall contribution down to $2 million, but didn't receive enough support. Councillors chose to reallocate the $500,000 originally for UNI to reduce the commitment in general obligation bonds as part of the $8 million contribution for the Cedar Falls Community School District's $21 million swimming facility at its future, future high school campus on West 27th Street. $500,000 in general obligation bonds were replaced in fiscal year 2024, and $200,000 in bonds still remained earmarked for the city's contribution towards the swimming project. That's when Harding suggested using $200,000 of the $300,000 in surplus left over, or what will be billed in the program as general fund savings. The $100,000 difference, as suggested by Councillor Susan DeBurr, will replace most of the $110,000 in general obligation bonding that had been earmarked for an expansion of the pickleball courts at Orchard Hill Park in fiscal year 2024. Additionally, $191,000 in general obligation bonds was removed from fiscal years 2025 and 2026 for an application for a Destination Iowa state grant for bridge lighting, a tiny portion of the larger request for millions of dollars in partnership with the City of Waterloo. That came after finding out the lighting was not a qualified expense. The $500,000 in general excuse me, the $500,000 in general revenues was removed from the estimated cost for zoning code updates, with Harding concerned about possibly not having enough to make significant changes. That could happen if councillors decide to move on from months and months of back and forth over significant code changes impacting downtown. After that $500,000 subtraction, what remained was $75,000 for both fiscal years 2024 and 2025. Broken down further, $50,000 would go toward a comprehensive plan update and $25,000 for zoning. Another $25,000 was left for those initiatives in each of the fiscal years 2026, 2027, and 2028. Originally, $150,000 was allocated for each year for zoning and the comprehensive plan. A final noteworthy change was moving $392,040 for the replacement of self-contained breathing apparatus for firefighters from fiscal year 2024 to fiscal year 2027. As a result, $98,010 in general obligation bonding was delayed two years because public safety officials determined the equipment could be purchased later. Even though the capital improvements plan was adopted, the council could go back and revisit items as it goes from excuse me as it goes about crafting its fiscal year 2024 budget and evaluating the proposed property tax rate prior to the March 31st state deadline another roundabout proposed on Maine Cedar Falls council to discuss at future special meeting also by Andy Malone out of Cedar Falls Main Street will be reconstructed that's a foregone conclusion while a couple city council members continue to gripe about the $29.99 million construction contract awarded last month for a 40% higher cost than originally estimated, 
One of them has now decided he'd like to look into a last-minute change order involving the 6th Street intersection. Councilor Daryl Cruz received the support of Gil Schultz, Dave Sires, and Dustin Ganfield on Tuesday for a referral to relook at incorporating a mini roundabout there. It's in the design as a traffic signal, and if it gains traction at the dais, four roundabouts would be constructed as part of the overall project. The plans already include roundabouts at the intersections of 12th and 18th Streets and Searley Boulevard. Cruz argued his colleagues, I'm sorry, Cruz urged his colleagues to consider the proposition in light of past justifications for roundabouts, like research showing they reduce accidents and wanting to improve the value of the citizen for the expensive project. One of the big drivers came from talking with a manager for the Casey's at the intersection. The manager reportedly told Cruz that to improve ingress, egress, and safety, they would die for more space in the front of their pumps. City Administrator Ron Gaines warned councillors that time is of the essence and they'll be at a point of no return soon before suggesting that a special meeting be scheduled in advance of the next meeting on February 6th. Public Works Director Chase Schrag said construction starts in April on that area of Main Street. Mayor Rob Green, as well as Councillors Kelly Dunn and Simon Harding, who dissented, cautioned that they didn't want to rehash similar conversations that have happened in months past. Design firm Foth Engineering has presented considerations and research in the past for the intersection. In other business, the council approved a referral of Councillor Simon Harding to evaluate the city's subdivision code requirements for green space. The reappointment of Shirley Murner in a 6-1 vote with Councillor Susan DeBurr dissenting to the Health Trust Fund Board of Trustees for six more years after having already served for more than 20 years. Green prefers positions to turn over after a tenure of that length, but admitted to foregoing the change because it's a hard board to fill. A final plat for Midwest Development Company on a subdivision of 9.35 acres of the 21.77-acre parcel for 22 residential lots to the south of West 12th Street and west of Union Road. It comes as a sixth addition for the plans for development of Wild Horse Ridge and part of the larger 148-acre property rezoned from A1 Agriculture, Agriculture to RP Planned Residential back in 2005 and a change to the past zoning agreement to alleviate a restriction for Oak District LLC for two lots on Green Hill Circle to accommodate a future nursing home, senior assisted living facility, as well as rezoning of four nearby lots from R4 to R1 to ensure their use remains consistent with the surrounding properties. You are listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Michelle Renee Foster, 46, of Waterloo, passed away Monday, January 16th at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. She was born April 26, 1976, in Waterloo, the daughter of Darwin and Cindy Billington Foster. Michelle graduated from Waterloo West High School in 1994. She worked at Blimpy for some time before starting her career of 15 years at Birch Cabinets, where she was a team leader in the panel mill. 
She loved watching cooking shows and babysitting for friends and relatives. Above all, she loved spending time with her family, especially her children. Michelle was loved by all who knew her and will be deeply missed. Michelle is survived by her parents, significant other Montrest Seals Sr., three children, Montrest Seals Jr., J. Trust Seals, and Jacinda Estes, brother Dwayne, spouse Mitch Foster, four nieces, Kylie and Kelsey Culbertson, Josie Dvorak, and Aubrey Foster, two nephews, John and Liam Foster, godson, John Coleno, many aunts, uncles, and cousins, and numerous friends. She was preceded in death by her grandparents, Clyde and Helen Billington, and Dellen and Phyllis Foster, sister Danielle Anderson, mother-in-law Nettie Seals, and stepfather Dan Anderson. A public visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 19th, at Haggerty Wakeoff Grarup Funeral Service on South Street. A funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Friday, January 20th at I'm sorry, I think I'm repeating myself. There will be a public visitation from an hour before. Burial will take place in Garden of Memories Cemetery. Please join the family for a luncheon following the burial at Lofty's Lounge, 3480 Lafayette Road, Evansdale. Memorials may be directed to the family. You may visit HaggertyWyckoffGarup.com to leave online condolences to the family. Out of Cedar Falls, Marilyn Jean Shrum, 81, passed away on Tuesday, January 17th, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital. She was born June 5th, 1941, in Sheraton, daughter of Donald and Wilma Perkins Lister. Marilyn graduated from Alderson Broadus University in Philippi, West Virginia, and Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and worked as a social worker for River Hills Development Center for 16 years. She was married to John Shrum at Christ Lutheran Church in Waterloo on August 9, 1975. Marilyn was preceded in death by her parents. She is survived by her husband of 47 years, John, children Rachel, spouse Joey Beasley of Waterloo, Heidi, spouse Jesse Pyle of Redland, and Joshua Shrum of Cedar Falls, eight grandchildren, Ashley Beasley, Misty Beasley, Jared Pyle, Adam Pyle, Danica Pyle, Ellie Pyle, Lucy Pyle, and Amelia Pyle. Two great-grandchildren and her brother Don Becky, I'm sorry, her brother Don, spouse Becky Lister of Hendersonville, North Carolina. Marilyn's funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, January 21st, at Emmanuel Lutheran Church of Cedar Falls, with visitation the evening prior from 5 to 7 p.m., at Dahl Van Hove's Scoof Funeral Home of Cedar Falls, entombment to follow at Garden Memory Cemetery in Waterloo. Memorials may be directed to Emmanuel Lutheran Church or Valley Lutheran Schools, and condolences can be left at dahlfuneralhome.com. Marilyn was an active volunteer for many years with international families of Cedar Falls, Waterloo, Goodwill Industries Volunteer Services, and Beta Sigma Phi Sorority. She was nominated for the Mayor's Volunteer Award in 2004. Marilyn was a member at Emanuel Lutheran Church, where she participated in Bible studies and served on the Ladies' Guild. She enjoyed spending time with her many friends and beloved family members. Donald Joseph Bedard, 81, of Hudson, died Tuesday, January 17th, at Unity Point Allen Hospital. 
He was born September 15, 1941, in Waterloo, the son of Joseph and Agnes Farrell Bedard. He married Sandra Sauer on November 30, 1963, in Waterloo. She preceded him in death on November 13, 2019. Donald was employed with John Deere at the Foundry and Engine Works until his retirement in 2004. He also helped in farming in the area. Survivors include his children, Toby Bedard of Hudson, Tony, spouse Chris Bedard of Dunkerton, and Shelley, spouse Jeff Peters of Dysart. Five grandchildren, Haley, spouse Josh Sprague, Jason, spouse Kayla Bedard, Nick, spouse Michelle, Cannonberg Peters, Ashley, spouse Sid McLaurie, and Lauren, spouse Ryan Connolly. Six great-grandchildren, Harper, Gemma, Easton, Millie, Thomas, Theo, and one on the way. His brother, Dick, spouse Claudie Bedard of Gilbertville. Preceded in death by his sisters in infancy, Mary Agnes Bedard and Jeanette Marie Bedard, his brothers Michael Bedard and Pat, spouse Karen Bedard, his nephew, little Pat Bedard, his niece, Julie Bedard. Services, 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 21st, at Haggerty Wyckoff Grarup Funeral Service on South Street with Beryl in Troy Mills Cemetery in Walker. Public visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 20th, and also one hour prior to the service at the funeral home. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be left at HaggertyWakeoffGrarup.com. Paul A. Weidman, 71, of Waterloo, died Monday, January 16th, at home after a lengthy battle with cancer. He was born October 12, 1951, in Waterloo, the son of Lloyd and Irene Rigdon Weidman. Paul attended Dunkerton schools and graduated from East High in 1969. He then served in the United States Army. He went on to receive welding and auto mechanics certifications from Hawkeye Tech. He married Linda K. Brittle on June 2, 1973, in Fairbank. Paul worked as a machinist at John Deere for 35 years until retiring in 2007. He had served on the Dunkerton School Board. He was a member of the UAW Local 838. In his earlier years, he enjoyed driving stock cars. Paul liked to garden in his free time, growing fresh produce in the summers. He was known to be a handyman, always staying busy, even building his own house, with help from Linda's father, Charles, Charles Brittle Sr. He and Linda loved to travel, especially to Las Vegas and along the California coast. Survived by his wife, Linda Weedman of Waterloo, two sons, Jay, spouse Carrie Jacobson Weedman of Rochester, Minnesota, and Jeffrey Weedman of Des Moines, three grandchildren, Brittany, Hannah, and Braxton Weedman, two great-grandchildren, Maya and Noah, and two brothers, Michael, spouse Irene Weedman of Madrid, and Samuel, spouse Mary Weedman of Chesterfield, Virginia, preceded in death by his parents and brother, Lloyd Weedman, Jr. Services are 1 p.m. on Friday, January 20th, at Lock on 4th. Visitation one hour prior to services at Lock on 4th. Memorials may be directed to the family, and you can visit LockFuneralServices.com. Sylvia May Huffman, 89, of Denver, Iowa, formerly of Waterloo, went to be with the Lord on the morning of Tuesday, January 17th. Public visitation for Sylvia will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. 
with a 6 p.m. time of sharing on Friday, January 20th, at Haggerty Wakeoff Grarup Funeral Service, West Ridgeway location. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, January 21st, at Waterloo First United Methodist Church with Rev. Hojin Shin officiating. Sylvia will be laid to rest at the Waterloo Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be directed in Sylvia's name to her family, which will be later designated to the Church or Unity Point Hospice Care of Waterloo. For further information or to leave an online condolence, please visit HaggertyWakeoffGrowth.com, HaggertyWakeoffGrowth Funeral Service, West Ridge, I'm sorry, West Ridgeway location, is caring for Sylvia and her family. Sylvia May Hastings was born on May 22nd in Wacon, the daughter of Chester and Elsie Custer Hastings. She was raised and educated in the Wacon school districts and graduated from Wacon High School. She was so proud of becoming a majorette as well as homecoming princess. On November 8, 1953, Sylvia was united in marriage to Cyril Huffman in Mississippi. From this union, the couple was blessed with four children, Kimberly, Todd, Lisa, and Penny. Sylvia lovingly raised her children and then worked as the appointment secretary for Olin Mill for eight years before retiring in 1996. Sylvia loved the Lord and truly had a heart of gold. She loved her family well, and being with them was what made her the happiest. They in turn loved her fiercely. She was a proud member of First United Methodist Church and loved being a part of her church family. She enjoyed the groups that she was involved with, like the Birthday Club Friends and her Monday Morning Panera Group. Sylvia was always helping friends and neighbors with rides to appointments, library, or church. She never stopped caring for others. She also enjoyed sewing and quilting and spending time with her beloved dog, Elsie. She is going to be dearly missed by all who knew her. Left to cherish Sylvia's memory are her children, Kimberly, spouse Larry, Cootage, Todd, spouse Sandra, Huffman, Lisa, spouse Steve, McDermott, and Penny, spouse Dan, Frankie. Grandchildren, Matthew Cudage, Matt, spouse Becca Brown, Katie, spouse Tracy Triber, Andrew Huffman and his fiancée Samantha Beggs, Ashley Huffman, Haley Frankie, and Benjamin Frankie, great-grandchildren Emmett and Lucas Brown, as well as Elsie, her four-legged companion. She is preceded in death by her husband, Cyril Huffman, parents Chester and Elsie Hastings, stepmother Cartha Hastings, Siblings, Lila Ewing, Keith Hastings, Ronnie Hastings, Robert Smebby, one grandson, Michael Cudage, one son-in-law, Dan Horan, two unborn children, and numerous close friends. Sonia K. Duckworth, 78, of Evansdale, passed away on Tuesday, January 17th, at Laporte Specialty Care in Laporte City, while under the care of Cedar Valley Hospice. Sonia was born on May 12, 1944, in Waterloo, to her parents Kenneth and Clara Marvitz Marquis. She grew up in Waterloo, where she later attended Waterloo East High School. In 1961, Sonia was united in marriage to Stephen Reginald. The couple later divorced. She later married John Brower. He preceded her in death in 1998. After receiving her GED, Sonia worked as a seamstress, later becoming skilled as a welder for many years, retiring in 2010 from Universal Industries. In her free time, Sonia was a faithful member of the Open Bible Church in Waterloo, later joining the Faith Assembly Church in Elk Run Heights, where she was a current member. 
Sonia is survived by her husband, Terry, of Evansdale. Children Stephen, spouse Monica, Reginald, of Washburn. Sean, spouse Steve, Kearney Reginald, of Claremont, Florida. Sherry, spouse Dean Weiss, of Columbiana, Alabama. And Nancy, spouse T.J. Herrick, of Portland, Tennessee. Nine grandchildren, Stephanie, Mia, Emma, Ian, Nicholas, spouse Cassie, Erica, Mackenzie, Colby, and Sydney. Stepchildren, Tony, spouse Melinda Duckworth of Kansas City, and Missouri, and Tammy, spouse Shane Hare of Cedar Falls. Step-grandchildren, Daniel, Dylan, and Taylor. She was preceded in death by her parents, husbands Stephen Reginald and John Brower, brother Charles Welcher, and sister Jessie Kennegeider. Visitation for Sonia will be held on Friday, January 20th, from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Locke Funeral Home at Tower Parks in Waterloo. The funeral service will be held on Saturday, January 21st at 10.30 a.m. at Faith Assembly Church in Elk Run Heights. Burial will follow the funeral service at the Fairview Lester Cemetery in Dunkerton. Memorials may be directed to the Alzheimer Association or Cedar Valley Hospice. Okay, we'll turn to the sports section and some high school football. The headline, Regents Adding Football, new program set to play in 2023 season. This is by Donald Prominence. Out of Waterloo, Waterloo Christian's rapid expansion into Iowa high school sports has surprised many, including athletic director Colin Luke. Colton Luke, excuse me. Last fall, the Regents rolled out their inaugural season in cross country, and in the spring, they'll start track and field. They've also enjoyed a recent string of successes in volleyball and girls and boys basketball. Now the school is taking on its most ambitious project yet, a varsity football team. The Regents will begin playing football in the 2023-24 season. Three sports in a year and a half is really big for any school, so we're really excited about what growth is happening, Luke said. Last year, head of school Ryan Hall was approached by parents of Waterloo Christian students interested in playing football. Ezra Zizerbach was tapped as a potential head coach for the project, and after getting Luke and Jacob Appleman on as assistant coaches, they strategized the formation of a team. Zizerbach, Luke, and Appleman are all former Northern Iowa offensive linemen. The Regents will play under an eight-man system, and according to Luke, they're paving the way for a team this fall, designing uniforms, getting equipment, and beefing up the weight room. Practices will be carried out in a field behind the school. The school has not announced where it will play home games as of yet. Scissorbach stressed the most important thing they want to build is team culture. More than anything, Scissorbach said his goal is for the team to reflect the school's mission. When it comes to a football culture, obviously as a Christian school, we want to start with Christ, and we want to bring glory to God in everything we do on that field, Scissorbach said. Whether we win or lose on the field, whether we have a good or bad day at practice, we want to have that understanding that God gets the glory at the end of the day. Luke says enthusiasm is high from staff, students, and parents alike, and he's being barraged with inquiries from potential athletes. Seems like weekly I get asked about the weight room or about the football equipment coming in or practices and what position do you think I would be good at? And just great enthusiasm from the students, Luke said. Friday Night Lights in Iowa is just really fun. So looking forward to give these kids an, an opportunity to do that here. High School Girls Basketball. West Rolls Xavier. Pook Williams combined to score 62 points. 
out of Waterloo. This article's by Ethan Petrick. The Waterloo West girls basketball team circled a few key opponents entering the 2022-23 season. The Class 5A number 3 Wahawks took care of business against one of those opponents in a 73-50 win over Class 4A number 3 Cedar Rapids Xavier Tuesday. They were definitely one of them, Haley Pook said. This game showed us we can compete when we play hard like. The defending Class 4A state champion Saints showed why the Wahawks held them in such high regard as opponents early on. Xavier managed to take an initial 3-0 lead as turnovers and a pair of missed field goals signaled a slow start for West. The Wahawks quickly put up their early struggles to, to rest. However, as superstar forward Sahara Williams cashed in on her first three field goal attempts to spark an 8-2 run and force a Xavier timeout. Williams finished the quarter strong, drilling three of her final four attempts in the quarter to lead West to a 17-12 lead after eight minutes of play. After four points in the first quarter, Pollock continued to get into more and more of a rhythm offensively and added eight points in the second. Combined with Williams's nine in the second quarter, the duo led the Wahawks to a 37-24 halftime advantage. Facing the second-highest-scoring team in Class 4A, West stymied the Staints with an aggressive brand of defense, which frequently saw the Wahawks double the ball and clog passing lanes inside. According to West, head coach Dr. Anthony Pappas, junior guard Charlotte Getman's return to the lineup allowed West to play more aggressive on the defensive end. Following halftime, Williams scored the first five points of the third quarter before Pook erupted for 13 in the third quarter. West outscored the Saints 13-8 in the fourth to secure the Wahawks' 13th win in 14 games. Pook ended the night with a season-high 32 points, while future Oklahoma Sooner Williams finished with 30 points. A combined 24 of 40 from the field, the duo scored scored effortlessly as though no defense were present. I would not say it was very easy, Williams said, but when you're in the zone, it is like tunnel vision. It is like, go get a bucket. Wherever the defense is not, I go. Pappas praised his team's performance on both ends and highlighted that Tuesday marked the first contest with West's full roster available for a game this season. We hustled on defense, Pappas said. We are really starting to learn how to play together. We played excellent basketball tonight. Pappas continued and emphasized the importance of each member of the team in a win. Xavier is a real quality team, Pappas said. They are a good team. They have the tradition, excellent coaching. Tonight, we beat a very good team and really did it in great fashion. It was a great team to win tonight. College men's basketball headline is Cyclones Pull Away to Top Texas by Andrew Logue from the Associated Press out of Ames. Jaron Holmes scored 21 points, and number 12 Iowa State defeated number 7 Texas 78-67 on Tuesday night. Holmes hit 7 of 13 shots, including two three-pointers, and Gabe Kalsher added 16 points. We earned this, Holmes said. We deserve this because of our daily habits. Caleb Grill contributed 17, and Osun Osinyi finished with 11 points and 7 rebounds for the Cyclones, who are 14-3, 5-1 in the Big 12. There is a rugged toughness to how we do it, Iowa State coach T.J. Otzelberger said but there is a togetherness and a unity that are at a really, really special level with this group. Texas, who is 15-3, whose record is 15-3 and 4-2, was undone by a second-half scoring drought that lasted nearly four and a half minutes. 
Iowa State responded with an 8-0 run to seize control. The Longhorns went 9.5 without making a shot from the floor. They made plays down the stretch, Texas interim coach Rodney Terry said. TJ had his team ready to play today, just a highly competitive game in the Big 12. A three-pointer from Grill gave the Cyclones a 64-55 lead with six minutes and one second to play. Christian Bishop led Texas with 12 points. The Longhorns' Tyrese Hunter scored 10 points, all in the first half, in his return to Ames after transferring from Iowa State. Hunter was greeted with boos and an occasional obscene chant from the student section. He responded with six quick points, matching his scoring mark from his previous three games. We're Texas. We get everybody's big game, Terry said. We looked at it like, you know what? It's an opportunity to compete at the highest level. Level. Hunter attacked it the same way. The Longhorns went on to build a 29-18 lead before Iowa State answered with a 10-0 run, sparked by three-pointers from Kalsher and Grill. Texas went the final 7 minutes 28 seconds of the first half without a field goal, but only trailed 36-35. The first 10 minutes they were the aggressor, aggressor, Oxelberger said. That last 30 minutes, how we competed defensively is the club we are and who we need to be for 40 minutes. The big picture, Iowa State moved into a three-way tie atop the Big 12 standings with Tuesday's win. The finish came about 30 minutes after Kansas's 83-82 overtime loss at Kansas State, handing the Jayhawks their first conference loss. Up next, Texas plays at West Virginia on Saturday night, and Iowa State visits Oklahoma State on Saturday. And we have another article here from the... Cedar Valley section. Mercy One gets state funding for child care. Out of Waterloo, Mercy One Northern, Northeast Iowa is able to expand child care offerings for its employees thanks to funding from the state of Iowa. Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center has received $108,000 through the Child Care Business Incentive Grant Program to help cover part of Mercy One colleagues' child care expenses. The Child Care Business Incentive Grant Program, funded through Iowa Workforce Development and the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services, helps employers offer or expand child care options to their employees. According to a news release from Iowa Workforce Development, the grant will allow for the addition of 36 child care slots. We know how important it is for parents to find trustworthy and quality child care that's affordable, Suzanne Burt, Mercy One, Northeast Iowa's Director of Human Resources, said in a news release. We're thankful the state is working with us and other employees, excuse me, other employers to address this need. Mercy One has partnered with Friendship Village's on-site child care facility, It Takes a Village, to offer Mercy One colleagues a caring, safe, and convenient space for their children to learn and play. In addition to the licensed child care staff, retirement community residents spend time with the children through a volunteer program. This is a great opportunity for both Friendship Village and Mercy One to work together to address a critical need for so many employees, Lisa Gates, Chief Executive Officer and President of Friendship Village, said in the release. Offering a child care option that is so close to their place of work with spots reserved for their children is a great benefit. And we have one Metro brief here. Gallery talk is tonight out of Waterloo. Self-taught artist Kathy Schumacher of Cedar Rapids will present a gallery talk at a reception from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. tonight at the Waterloo Center for the Arts, 224 Commercial Street. 
Schumacher's exhibit of 24 portraits now on display, Freedom's Daughters, depict largely unknown black heroines from suffrage to civil rights in the U.S. names like Sojourner Truth. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. Her exhibits of 24 portraits depict largely unknown black heroines from suffrage to civil rights in the U.S. Names like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Rosa Parks are familiar to the public, but fewer people recognize names like Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, co-founding editor of Women's Era, the first national newspaper published by and for black women, and Nanny Helen Burroughs, founder of the first black-owned and operated schools for girls, for example. The event is open, free, to the public. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.